Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Well, good morning. As Ken said, my name is Scott Caldwell, and uh, I'm excited to be uh, with you this morning. If you really knew me, you'd know that Susan and I, our family, we're going through a lot of firsts right now. About a month ago, we sent our first uh, child to their senior prom. And then just two days ago, our daughter Katie Ann graduated from high school, our first kid to graduate from high school. And that means it's our first time about to send a kid off for college. It's also our first time paying for college. And it was our first time filling out FAFSA, which I think is Greek for wasting time um, or torture. I think that's what they call it when the guy at the airport wands you. He's FAFSAing you. It uh, is a time of firsts. Uh, I'm actually going through a first right now. Uh, This is my first time sharing with you as a whole body. I've taught Sunday school, but never on a Sunday morning stood here. Good news, it's not my first sermon. It might be my last. We'll see how today goes. But uh, no, my first sermon uh, was about 23 years ago um, at a church I served in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, It was not the sermon that was so memorable that morning. It was the baptism. That was also my first Uh, My first time baptizing somebody, and in this church uh, that I served in, uh, their tradition was you you dunked a person. Here we sprinkle this other church, a different tradition, and I'd never done it before. And what's more is there wasn't a class that they taught in seminary on this. There wasn't like baptism class. I guess you just knew it, you picked it up. Well, here's how it went. Uh, Apparently, a minister would wear a robe, and he'd have underneath his suit, basically, no coat, but tie, shirt, trousers, and would wear waders, and he'd put on a robe, and you'd wade into a pool. Apparently, it matters where you stand the person. You you should stand them to the left, and that way, when they go under the water and they get horizontal, they're kind of right in front of you. If you stand them to the right, they take you down with them. Well, I had not learned this and slayed Daryl down into the water. I couldn't get him horizontal and I just looked at his pudgy face and the water was right here around his face. And I thought, oh no, for the rest of his life, Daryl will wonder if it took. So I, I had to push him down further and his feet came up. That's the first thing. The second is when I began to feel the water coming in the side of the waders. I wondered how many uh, gallons of water it would take for me to be stuck there in the water. And the third thing I remember I'll never forget is I preached my first sermon soaking wet. Not kidding. There's actually more to the story you can find out. You'll notice there's no baptisms in the order of service this morning. And there are advantages to sprinkling instead of dunking. Well, as Ken said, I've been serving along with 10 of the most fabulous people I know on the lead pastor search team for our church. We've been asking uh, one question primarily up to this point, what does our church need in a pastor? 
it's such an important question. We asked you to help us understand the answers, and you did that in a survey, which was really helpful. And along the way, I found myself asking a second question. What does a pastor need in a church? What does our church need in a pastor? What does our pastor need in a church? Today, we're gonna look at one scripture with those two questions in mind in hopes to find some answers. Our scripture today is already very familiar. Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, they covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to the throne room of God. The year was 740 B.C., This is 18 years before the nation of Assyria would attack and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. That means if you were a child born in 740 BC, by the time you reached graduation, your nation was conquered. Your people taken into captivity, your friends, your family taken away and living in another land altogether. And the whole time at that point, your whole 18 years of life, There had been a prophet named Isaiah who over and over again would say to Israel, turn back to God and turn away from wickedness. 18 years he shared this message. What was it that was the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah had a face-to-face encounter with the glory of the living God? In the year King Uzziah died, we read in the text, it says Isaiah saw What do you you mean he saw? Did he see? Was it a dream? Probably a vision. Or, Or maybe even a thin place where heaven and earth get so close that they almost meet and the veil is pulled back and the earthly realm sees into the heavenly. He says he saw. And then he says he saw the Lord. Doesn't say I saw my Lord, or a Lord. He says he saw the Lord, and everyone would have known that he meant the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He saw that Lord, 
the Lord that is, the God who is, not the God of subjectivity that's subject to your thoughts and my thoughts or Ricky Bobby's, I like to picture my Jesus as thoughts. But he saw God, the Lord. And he said he saw him and he, he was high and lifted up and seated on a throne, exalted. And then around him were flying these creatures called seraphim that had six wings. Two of them covered his, their feet, two of them covered their faces, and two of them, they flew. You get the picture of this God that's transcendent, holy other, the uncaused cause of all things. That's who Isaiah is seeing. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw. But he didn't just see something. He heard something. He said he heard singing. They were singing holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, uh, there aren't exclamation points. You don't communicate intensity with uh, capital letters. You did it by repetition. To say that someone was holy was to say something. To say that they were holy, holy was to say more. But to say that they were holy, holy, holy was to say that they were the highest possible degree of holiness and to declare that as the reality. Heaven's soundtrack, heaven's Spotify playlist has one song, and it plays on repeat, holy, holy, holy. 850 years later, the apostle John had a vision. And in this vision, another time when it feels like the, the veil was pulled back and he saw and he heard, same song, second verse, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah saw and Isaiah heard, but then it says he felt. He says that the sounds of their voices singing, the thresholds shook. Isaiah saw and he heard and he felt, and then it says the place filled with smoke, he smelled it. You see what's going on? This encounter with God is a full body experience with the true and living glorious God. That's who Isaiah saw. He saw the glory of the God who is, not a God of our own making. He saw the glory of God who does not fit neatly in my Instagram posts or my bumper stickers. He saw the God who doesn't just, uh, is not someone we use to describe ourselves or divide ourselves, but the God who defines us, who transforms us who is reigning over a kingdom that he's bringing here on earth as it is in heaven. That's who he saw. The past few weeks, if you've been with us, Richie Sessions has repeatedly, for emphasis, asked the question, what is your God like? Tell me what your God is like. Is he anything like this? Is he anything like the God that Isaiah sees? And if he's not, what are the implications for you and me? And what does it even matter? One author says, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. But a high view of God is a high view, a holy view, a biblical view of this God. But that's not all we need in a pastor, right? Theology proper, 
It's not all we need to be as a church. As wonderful as it is, and as important as that is, it's, it's not quite enough, is it? You see, it's the glory that Isaiah saw of the real and holy God that began to shine light deep into his soul. It's his holy, holy, holiness that's so magnificent and so immense that it pierces down to who we really are, free from all of the hiding, free from all of the pretense and all the facade, the real us. Okay, imagine with me that next Saturday you're doing some yard work and you've worked all morning and it's time for lunch, your shirt has dirt on it and you've smelled better. You go inside to fix lunch and a few minutes later there's a knock at the door. You open the door and there's these two dignitaries, very tall and broad, and between them a very small, magnificent lady the Queen of England. What's the first thing you do? Well, you look at yourself and go, hi. And you begin to smooth out the wrinkles, right? And then you look around you and you see the mess and you're like, gosh, you know, you block the thing that's kind of the stack of boxes from Amazon that you don't know what to do with yet. And then uh, the kids start running around and they're saying, he hit me, he hit me. And what's the first thing you'd say? Come on in, sorry about all the mess. What is Isaiah's response when he sees this holy, holy, holy God? He actually utters his first words in the entire book. And he basically says, I'm sorry about all the mess. He says it a little different. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So what's he saying? He's basically saying three things. The first he's saying is, I'm ruined. He's saying more than just ruined. The Hebrew word for ruined is the word dama. It means I'm dead. I'm a dead man. The holiness of God in the midst of his unholiness makes him feel dead on the inside. Actually, in Exodus 33, God said to Moses, no one can see me and live. And Isaiah knows he's seen the Lord, at least his manifest presence. One author says the effect of beholding God is to make one realize his own unworthiness and the corruption in his own heart. It's like God's glory is a full-length mirror on the inside and out that exposes the true picture, and it doesn't distort in any way. The first thing Isaiah says is, I'm a dead man. But then he says something else. He says, I'm a dirty man. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the word for unclean is a word called tame, it means defiled, foul, dirty, impure, polluted. And listen specifically to what he says. He doesn't say, uh, I've said some bad things. He doesn't say, uh, I've done some bad things. He says, I am thing wrong, and I feel it. I feel guilt for what I've done. That's guilt. But when I move further and say I am, am something wrong. 
I've moved from guilt and into shame. I've not done something dirty. I am something dirty. There's actually two kinds of guilt uh, we learn. Uh, One is actually a good, not guilt, shame. Two kinds of shame. One is actually a good shame. It's good that we have it. It prevents us from uh, walking around without clothes on. It's the, the kind that makes us decent and appropriate. But then there's this other kind, the kind that Isaiah is talking about. It's a toxic shame. It seeps deep down and whispers unworthiness. It whispers, uh, you're not wanted, you're dirty. It uh, immobilizes us, paralyzes us. It's actually what keeps people like you and me from rushing straight into the throne room of God. Isaiah says, I'm a dead man, I'm a dirty man. And he says, but that's not all. I'm not just a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a dead man, I'm a dirty man. We're all in it together. He's talking about the culture where he lives. Uh, They've become a way. No longer are they uh, the followers of God having an impact on the culture around them, but the culture has begun to affect them. And he's no different than the people around him. So what's the culture that we live in? What's the water in which we swim? Well, in uh, Franklin, Williamson County, I've lived here about five years. You've probably lived here longer. Do you feel uh, the disconnection between people? Do you feel the busyness? Do you hear people talk about loneliness? Do you feel a sense of anxiety or depression? The numbers on the prescriptions seem to say we do. Do you uh, get that sense of comparison? Your house looked big until the new one was built. Your yard looked great until the neighbor got his done at a high price. Do Do you have that sense of the impressions that we try to put on for the queens of England out there? We try pretty hard. Do you, uh, you say we live in the Bible Belt, but do you feel the growing secularization of the world around you? Do you feel it even in yourself? You say, well, um, it's a really nice community. It is, it's very nice, probably the nicest place I've ever lived. Very wealthy. And yet there are indicators of great poverty, not in neighborhoods, but in lives. They show up in addiction. They show up in our pornographic habits. They show up uh, in the way that we medicate ourselves. Do we have idolatry here? Probably. Racism, we've got a sketchy past. But here's the one that gets me. We have all this going on. But you'd never know. We keep a pretty tidy appearance about us. But underneath the surface, all of these things seem to seethe and fester. I'm a dead man. I'm a dirty man. It's all around me. It's the water in which I swim. I wish I could affect it, but the truth is it's affecting me. It's affecting us. It's affecting this church. 
A.W. Tozer said, we can never know who or what we are till we at least know something about who God is. So what do we do? What do you do about it? What do you do if you're casual or indifferent about God? What do you do if you're comfortable or numb in your faith? What do you do if you're uh, apathetic or unapologetic? If you're unmoved or unaffected? If I'm too passive or, or too Presbyterian? What do I do if I scroll through God like one more, what do you do? Well, you realize that what you need is not the perfect pastor. And you realize what you need is not another bottle of bourbon for the collection. And what you need is not a better understanding of your Enneagram number. What I need is to get to the throne room and fast. What my spirit needs is his spirit's resuscitation. What my heart needs is to be defibrillated by the glory that Isaiah saw. What I need is the CPR that comes from encountering him. God, I need you to show up, not just to meet my need, but to recapture my heart in a new way. What does our church need in a pastor? What does a pastor need in a church? A clear view of who we are, a clear view of who he is, a clear view of what our community is. To walk humbly and kindly among people who are racked with guilt and shame. And to be transparent about who we are and who we aren't and what it is that's keeping us from God. So that's it, right? I mean, a high and biblical and holy view of God and a really keen awareness of ourselves. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. But maybe there's something more. What if there's uh, something that would bring those two things together, a, a transcendent holy God in all of his glory, and the people of unclean lips like Isaiah and his friends and me and mine? What if there's something that would bring the two parties together? Remember we said Isaiah saw and Isaiah heard and Isaiah felt and Isaiah smelled. But if you're a smart third grader like mine, you know there's five senses. There's one more. Isaiah tasted. He tasted something. Remember what the text says? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. During the stay-at-home period in COVID, uh, maybe your family came up with lots of different traditions or practices. For our family, one was every Friday, we would go and get a different pizza from a different place. We have a chalkboard and we listed out every pizza place we could figure out. And then we like, checked them off, like when they, we had done them. If they were no good, we crossed them off and we will never eat there again. But the ones that remained on the board, we began to rank. I never contracted uh, COVID and therefore I never lost my sense of taste or smell from COVID. I lost my sense of taste from every Friday night's burning hot pizza hitting the roof of my mouth. I spent most of the time, you know, like thick tongue going, I don't know which one's the best. And uh, 
I don't know why we never say like, that meatloaf just burned the roof of my mouth. We always say pizza, and for me, it was always from Old Chicago or Sal's. Those were my top two. Isaiah thought when he saw an angelic being coming toward him with a hot coal would touch his lips, he thought it would taste like utter destruction, but it tasted like deliverance. It tasted like acceptance, dead man state. It was God who approached him, God who pursued him in grace. And it was God also who accepted Isaiah just as he was, the unclean man who could not clean himself up, did not clean himself up. There's nothing you and I or Isaiah can do to render ourselves more acceptable to God than he already treats us. It tasted like grace and acceptance. It tasted unexpected. Isaiah thought for sure it would hurt, but it healed. And then did you hear the words? Did you hear those words? Where do we know these words from? With it, he touched my mouth and he said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Who says that? Who does that? Who's on the throne in Isaiah's vision? We get a little clue later in the Bible in John chapter 12 where John says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and he spoke about him. Who was on the throne? The second person of the Trinity, the son of God who takes away guilt and atones for sin. That's who's speaking through these angelic beings. When we can't clean ourselves up, how can sin and guilt and shame be removed? Only through Jesus. Because of Jesus, deliverance is not our destruction because he provided deliverance through his own destruction. Because of Jesus, the burning coal doesn't hurt, it heals. And because of Jesus, you and I are accepted not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. Because of Jesus, we can approach a throne, a throne that's not a throne of judgment, it's been transformed into a throne of grace by faith. The writer of Hebrews says, come boldly to this throne of grace. You know who comes boldly? You wanna know what boldness looks like? It happens in your house at two o'clock in the morning when your kid has an upset stomach, when he can't, she can't sleep, when she has a bad dream. They just bust right on in, right? That's what it looks like to come boldly, is to come like a child, to a father. Tim Keller said, there's only one person that can wake the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water, and it's a child. We have that kind of access to God. So let me ask you, have you tasted, or have you tasted recently of God's gospel goodness? The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a song that we sing uh, here at church sometimes. Uh, it's a song called Holy Spirit. And it says, I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of love where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Now that's what we need in a pastor. 
one who not only has a high view of God and an awareness of sin, but one who's regularly tasting of God's gospel goodness, and he can help you and me do the same. And that's the kind of person, uh, that's the kind of people he desires in a church, a church where the members, our hearts, are becoming free and our shame becoming undone. One where the gospel isn't just preached on Sunday morning, but it's experienced on Monday morning and throughout the week, and it's infused into everything we do. But that's not where it ends for Isaiah or for us or for our church. It's really only where it begins. Isaiah looked, and he looked upward toward a holy God. Isaiah looked, and he saw inward toward an unholy man who received a a crazy kind of redemption and salvation. But then Isaiah looked outward as well. God says, who will go for us and whom shall we send? And Isaiah replied and said, here am I, send me. The Bible has certain themes that run through it, cover to cover. It's really interesting. Different ones for different things, but here's one that you'll find throughout. Come and see, go and tell. It started with Abraham, uh, come and see, go and tell. To Moses, God said, come and see, go and tell. To David, come and see, go and tell. To Isaiah, to to the major prophets, to the minor prophets, come and see, now go and tell. Jesus, with a man born blind, he literally said, come and see, go and tell. Remember the woman at the well? My dying grandmother's favorite gospel passage. Come and see, go and tell. The women at the tomb at Jesus' resurrection, the great commission, it's all come and see, followed by go and tell. If the gospel isn't affecting you, it's probably not affecting anyone else. And therefore, it's probably not the gospel through which I'm worshiping. But if I'm truly tasting of Christ, if I'm truly feeling his touch, I won't be able to keep that to myself. I won't want to. And if our church is going to continue to thrive, we will have to continue to have that sense, that touch of encountering him, of coming and seeing but we'll also have to get really good at the going and telling into the community in which we're planted. What do we need in a pastor? One who will equip us and lead us both uh, upward to God, inward to what he can do in our lives, but then outward and toward our community. And what does a pastor need in a church? People who are willing and ready to be sent. Maybe it's across the street, could be across an ocean. I don't know what he has planned. Maybe it means uh, being sent across a demographic in a way that's new for you or across a generation and reach down into their children's ministry, the student ministry, or out into the community to encounter the next generation out there. Whatever it is, come and see naturally results in go and tell. And we need a pastor that will lead us there. And we need to be the kind of church that will follow where we're led. So what do we do about all this? 
How, what does this matter? How does this change the way we live? The answer for me lies in a pretty interesting place. In the ministry I serve, Young Life, we do some crazy things. And one of the things we'll do is a scavenger hunt. Sometimes we go get a, an item, bring it back. Sometimes we go take a crazy picture, bring them all back. But there's one kind of scavenger hunt that's my favorite. It's called a bigger, better scavenger hunt. And here's how it goes. You start off with something small like a paper clip or a safety pin. Each group gets it and they start going out into the community. You knock on a door and you hold up the paper clip and you ask this question. Do you have anything bigger or better than this? Maybe they make an exchange. A paper clip becomes a coffee mug. A coffee mug becomes a toaster. A toaster, a microwave. A microwave, a recliner. A recliner, a Ford F-150. You know, something like that. You're just trading up as you go and you don't know where it's gonna end. I love it. But it's not because I love Ford F-150s. It's because for one night, every teenager, Maybe you're here today and you're asking the same question of life. Do you have anything bigger or better than this? Maybe you're trying out religion and you're not finding what you're looking for and you're asking, do you have anything bigger or better than this? Maybe you're searching for meaning, substance. What's all this for? Do you have anything bigger or better than this? And to this church, Our community looks at us and they're asking, Christ community, do you have anything bigger or better than this? Your coworkers, your friends, your families, your neighbors, all of them asking, do you have anything bigger or better than this? The next generation asking, do you have anything bigger or better than this? Our answer has to be a resounding yes. He is the God of unmatched glory. He is the God who through his son, takes away sin and atones for guilt. He's the God who can restore what's broken. He's changing our lives. He can change yours. That's what our church needs in a pastor. And that's the kind of church that we uh, need to be for him. Let me pray. And so God, so often... I am, un- I am Isaiah standing outside of the throne room thinking somehow I don't belong. So often I uh, live immobilized, paralyzed in shame. So often I miss out on what you want to do in my life. But God, I pray that for me and my friends today, you'd help us to rush in like your children you would help us to come to you in faith, that you would help us to risk that the touch won't hurt, it will heal, won't destroy, it will deliver. God, your love, your grace, your holiness, and your power is so great. Would you use it to, to pierce down to my inner being? Would you use it to change us? Draw our eyes upward, yes, Inward, please, but outward to be salt and light in our community. We love you. Amen.